You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. I want to just direct you in that general direction. If you're using the YouVersion Bible app and you go to the event, there is a ton of extra stuff there. I'm going to be referencing some of that, but there's a lot of extra material there. If you're using one of those church Bibles, it's going to be on page 957, John chapter 13. Verses 31 through 35. I'd like to read this for us as we begin. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 say this. When he, he's talking about Judas, when he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is God's word. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, help me to preach this well, that it could be, that it could reflect who you are correctly. Lord, help us to hear from your word well. And God, help us to love our brothers and sisters as you have called us to, in this way. Transform us by the, by the power of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in a series, uh, if you're a guest here or, or if you've just forgotten, we're in a series called Put on Christ. In fact, you can't, it's there. You can't really forget it. But we're in this series called Put on Christ, and the goal of the series is to answer the question we left off with in Romans, as we're taking a break from Romans, Romans 13, 14, and there, there was a command to put on Christ, right? But that particular passage doesn't give us a lot of detail about what that actually looks like. We don't have handles to hold on to. We don't have this tangible path before us. So we're in this series now looking at what that could be. And if there was any scripture in the Bible that might give us a standard by which we could measure, it's the one we've just read. Like it's in here, we we learn how to love one another, right? There should be something observable in how we love other Christians, there should be something there that outsiders can see in us and say, wow, just by the way that person loves other Christians, that person clearly is a follower of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has loved us, and he's modeled that for us, in the same way he's asking us to love one another. So I want to direct our attention here to Scripture, and I want to see if we can better understand what this might actually look like in a tangible way for us. And while I would like to just focus on verses 34 and 35, that's where it would be easy just to go right there. That's where the command is. Um, We'd be missing a lot if we didn't put this in its proper context. This is the the framework in which Jesus is talking to his disciples, and we see all of that starting in 31 through 35. Judas has left. He's gone out. He's going to go betray Jesus. And now the, the gears have shifted, and Jesus starts this discourse, a conversation. There's something that's much larger happening, and and I. I don't want us to miss that. He's leaving. 
He is departing his physical ministry. He is going to get these guys launched on a particular mission. He's going to be with them in a new way. And there's something about how we love one another that has to do with his mission. Now, you might say, how do you know that verse 34 doesn't belong into a new section? Some Bibles will put a little heading above it. They'll break it apart. How do you know this all goes together? Why did you read the first part? Well, glance down at verse 36. Right there in 36, Peter asks a question about the first part. Lord, where are you going? So the conversation that Jesus has started about leaving is continuing. He, they're still talking about it. This, it. The stuff we're looking at with this new command is sandwiched in between that. It's part of this conversation about the many mansions in the Father's house, about the gift of the Holy Spirit coming, even about Peter having a denial of Jesus. A bunch of, it's all part of this huge conversation about Jesus departing. So how we love one another is clearly tied to Jesus' departure. He's going to be with us in some other way. Something's about to change, but these instructions have to do with that change. These instructions have to do with the mission of the church and how the church will function in the future. This all goes together. John Calvin said, it's as if Jesus were saying it like this. Yet while I am absent from you in the body, testify by mutual love that I have not taught you in vain. Let this be your constant study, your chief meditation. He's saying, look, love each other so well that they know what I taught you, that this wasn't a waste of our time, that this is good, and focus on it and make it your, your primary objective and study it and understand what Jesus taught. In this case, that should pour out by how they love one another. That's what's happening here. Okay, so we have this context in mind. With this in mind... It looks as if Jesus is giving sort of these final commands. He's going to go sit at the Father's right hand. He's given these specific commands for this new thing that is coming. It's a lot like uh, make disciples and teach them all that I have commanded you from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, or Acts 1.8 that says, be my witness. It's one of those final commands. Or feed my sheep, he said to Peter in John 21, 15 through 17, and then you have this one, love one another as I have loved you. This sort of goes in that grouping of final instructions. The question that I think surfaces, though, is how do we know this is a new command? It says, I give you a new command. You say, well, time out. Hold, hold on, hold on a second. Doesn't Leviticus 19, 18 already say, love your neighbor as yourself? Didn't Jesus already reaffirm that that's the second greatest commandment? We talked about that last week. How is this new? What's going on here? Well, the command is new in that Jesus has just really upped the bar for his disciples. He's cranking up the heat. He's turning up the volume. It's new like this. Well, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself directs Christians to love everyone, which is your neighbors, everybody, this new commandment specifically is about loving the one another's, and in this case, the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a more targeted love. While the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself sets yourself as the standard by how you measure how you're doing, this commandment sets Jesus as the standard by what we measure the love by. While the commandment to love your neighbor demonstrates an obedience to the Old Testament law, the new commandment reflects a love for Jesus 
and his people by the way in which you love them, and it marks you as his disciple. It's as if to say this is a way, this new commandment that this sort of encircles us and shows us that we are a faith family together, all united out of the love of Jesus Christ. It's the common bond. Okay, and then given that this is one of Jesus' final instructions for his disciples, and then by extension us, we probably need to know how we're supposed to do it. If we're, you're commanded to love one another. How do we do this? How do we understand? Jesus says that we're to love just as I have loved you. How has he loved us? What does he mean by this? We could speculate, and lots of people do. Right? We, could, we could just say, well, he went to the cross, or he did this, or he was a homeless guy who did that, or he fed people. or We could speculate, or we could just go back to his word, and we could look at it in its immediate context. He said, love others as I have loved, past tense, so not the stuff he would do in the future, going to the cross, but as something he's already done. Love others as I have loved you, and what has he just done? Just skim over in your Bible, you might see it in your heading. Look at the beginning of chapter 13. He just washed their feet. As a humble one, doing the lowliest of jobs when you have these communal gatherings. Why is this such a important task? Why is this such a lowly task? Well, let's think about it for a minute. This isn't, I mean, it's weird in our day. We have to contend with weird things, toe fungus and athlete's foot and whatever. But in their day, they didn't have paved roads. They also had animals, which meant they had dirty streets and animal droppings, and their shoes were sandals. So their feet were pretty gross. So as a way to show a sense of honor and as a way to bring in community, if you had a group meal, someone would wash their feet. This is because they ate picnic style. Uh, they didn't have the same kind of tables and chairs that we have today. They don't all sit around a, a, a table like that. Table was actually a really low thing, kind of like when you go to like a really fancy sushi place and you spend a ton of money for sushi and they make you really uncomfortable and sit on the floor. Well, they sat on the floor, and a lot of times they did it picnic style. A lot of times they'd lean forward with their legs out, and they'd use a cushion. So they didn't have the, the big table and all the chairs, and I promise you they didn't all sit on the same side of the table like is depicted in Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. That, just get that out of your head and imagine a picnic on a blanket where they're all laying together. And if you have dirty feet, they've been walking around on the poo-poo streets with the dust and the dirt and all the stuff, well, that's gross. So when they'd gather together in a group, it was very customary that someone would wash everybody's feet. This was a standard practice of their day, much like the standard practice in our day, that when you go to a public place, there is someone, a custodian, who tends to clean the public restroom. Right? You'd be a little offended if you went to a very expensive place and you bought a very expensive shrimp and steak dinner and the restaurant expected that you clean the bathroom. <laughs> Nobody would feel very good about that deal, right? That, I just spent a ton of money in here. What are we doing? Right? That's somebody else's lowly job. That's not my job. This is why it was such a big deal when Jesus went to a, a highfalutin Pharisee's house and a sinful woman ended up washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. That's shocking. 
just in the context I've just shared with you. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 7. I want to read verses 36 through 50, and I know that's, we're going to read some scripture here, but I think it helps set the stage well for what's actually happening. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, I'd like to invite you to read along with me. Kiddos, help your parents find it. The book of Luke, Luke's probably up at the top. The chapter's the big number, the verses are the little numbers. Um, Point it out, make sure your parents are in the right spot. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's that picture on the cushions. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She bought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this was who was touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, because he read his thoughts. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now let's go back to Jesus washing feet. Let's put this in that context. Look back at the beginning of chapter 13. Verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God. And that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. The one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he know, knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Why did he do this? This is Jesus. This is the, the Savior of the world. This is the one that sinful women wash his feet. Why would he wash his disciples' feet? Why would he have to humble himself in just such a way? We could, we could speculate once again, or we could just again look to the text. Let's just keep reading for a minute. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Did you hear that language? Did you hear that? You also wash one another's feet. That sounds like loving one another. Or he said, For I have given you an example that you should, or you also should do just as I have done, which sounds just like, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. This is tied back to that. He's just modeled for us what it looks like to, one, to love one another. He's just modeled what he wants them to do to love one another. He's humbly served them. And then he commands his disciples that they should humbly serve each other. Jesus is telling his disciples to love one another by serving one another. Remember Romans 12.10? When we were in the Roman series, Jesus told us, through Paul, to do the same. He said, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another, showing honor. It's just this. Love one another deeply. Serve them. Show them honor. Outdo each other. Like, make it a competition. Who can serve who better and more? Now, where do we go wrong here? Where, where do we get this wrong? How do, we, how do we drop the ball on this? Or let me say it another way. Where does this go sideways on us? Like as Christians, as a, as a church, as believers following Jesus Christ. Now, it's really easy. It's really easy for us to say that this doesn't go the way Jesus said it should because we're sinners. Like we have a sin nature and we're selfish and we don't always obey God and we're nodding going, yeah, that's, yep, that's true. But sometimes I think we're way too complacent in that answer. I think we're just too shallow. We use that to get off the hook. Well, we're just sinners. Isn't that too bad? It might be helpful if we're really going to understand how to love other disciples the way that Jesus loved, if we get a little more specific about how we miss the mark. We need to own the sin in our lives. We can't use it as an excuse and to do that, I think I'd like to offer some specific examples. Now, I had a huge list initially, 
And it was so daunting that I thought I just cannot put that much on us. So I have three examples this morning. Right? There could be plenty more. And I'm going to invite you to think about areas where maybe you could come up with some others to add to this list. But I want us to look at how Christians don't do a very good job loving Christians. Right? And I want to start with this one. Gossip. Gossiping. Now, when I say gossip, I think our mind goes to like uh, the little whisper circles around the water cooler at work. Psst, psst, psst. Oh, did you see so-and-so? What about that? Psst, 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 psst. Those days are way behind us. Like we have far graduated from knitting circles and water cooler gossip. Gossip is this. Here's the definition. It's sharing or listening to unverified information about other people that is intended to lead us to think poorly about them or mistrust them. Listening to unverified information that is designed to cause us not to trust or designed to cause us to think poorly of another person. This behavior runs rampant when it comes to politics, entertainment, and just about everything you find on social media or in your favorite news networks. This is all over the place, isn't it? But sadly, Christians engage in it just as much as everybody else. Christians do this sort of thing just as much, right? And it doesn't help that our smartphones seem to have gossip built right into them. Like unverified information that makes people look bad? You bet. Like button. A while back, I posted a picture of all the theology books that Daniel, my son, had just recently finished. And it was like a big stack. Um... One of the books was a John Piper book, a good John Piper book. And someone who I haven't heard from in like a decade commented with this really harsh criticism about John Piper that obviously was coming out of some anger position, something that was just, it was just this kind of hostile, unfounded, mean thing. And I did some research. I couldn't find anything that John Piper had ever said that would verify what this person was saying Piper was all about. It was just a mean little bit of gossip on social media. We do this all the time, don't we? We see this kind of stuff all the time, don't we? We facilitate this kind of stuff all the time, don't we? We pay for subscriptions to things that cause this stuff to happen and run rampant, don't we? As Christians. So instead of gossiping in this way or perpetuating this unfound information that makes others look bad and causes distrust and division, especially among Christians, we need to start by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ by speaking truth in ways that build up and offer grace and respect We need to follow the example in Ephesians 4.29. Building up our brothers and sisters, extending grace. And if there's a problem between disciples, we need to follow the model we have in Matthew 18.15-20, in which we go to them privately first. We share the gospel and we work through it. And there's an escalation of how that should work. I want to encourage you to think about that time. The next time, gossip among brothers and sisters comes up ahead of you, whether it's in any one of these various circles. And then we should probably extend that wonderful grace out to the whole world. But we've got to start with even our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we can't even do that amongst the home team, how are we ever going to extend that kind of grace to the world? The next way in which I think we, we might 
miss the mark, drop the ball, something that stops us from loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, is harboring resentment. I can struggle with this one. Like I got a, I got a, I got like a let's fight sort of thing inside me, and I'll hold on to that for way too long. What this does is this prevents us from loving one another as we should. We hold on to the anger and we hold on to the bitterness, and then that leads out, and then that prevents us from seeking forgiveness or maybe forgiving. It prevents us from seeking uh, reconciliation. If we don't forgive and we don't seek reconciliation, how are we ever going to love them as Christ loved them? Did you notice what happened? We didn't read it, but if you, if you glance down or if you know the story, do you know what happened right before and right after Jesus gave us this new command? Just glance at your Bible. You'll see it. You just look at the headings. You'll catch it. Just before Jesus gave the new command, we read that Judas is going to betray Jesus, and we read about the betrayal. And immediately after, Jesus tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. Jesus knew what both of these men were going to do to him. He also washed Judas' feet, and he also washed Peter's feet. He served them. He loved both of them, even though he knew what they would do to him. He didn't harbor resentment toward them, Now, he does have to be the perfect judge, and Judas didn't seek his forgiveness or any forgiveness. Judas didn't get forgiveness. Peter, on the other hand, did. In both cases, Jesus loved them, and he served them. He has to be perfectly just with sin, and he has to be perfectly just with judgment and love which is why he took this punishment on himself, dying under the wrath of the judgment of God. He knew he would die for Peter's sin, even while Peter was denying him, yet he still washed Peter's feet. He didn't kind of do a nanny-nanny-boo-boo, look what I'm doing. You're going to do all this. But he didn't bring it up then. He just loved. He just served Peter. What an example for us. And Jesus says, do this, I'm serving you as an example. What an example. Colossians 3.13 says, Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Right? So we should cultivate this ongoing posture of forgiveness and reconciliation and love as we're instructed to do. Also, we see that in Ephesians 4.31-32. We should be like that, forgiving and loving. As difficult as that may be, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Just as the Lord has served those who would even stab him in the back, so you also are to serve your brothers and sisters. The third way I think we get this all monkeyed up is by neglecting the needs of our faith family. Now, I had a lot of other stuff in the list, but I realized this one actually kind of goes unspoken sometimes. We are not loving Christ... Excuse me, we are not loving our brothers and sisters as Christ has loved us when we ignore the physical and the spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The physical and the spiritual needs. We've covenanted together. If you're a member here, we're in a covenant together to say we're going to walk this Christian journey together. We're going to bear one another's burdens. We're going to be concerned for one another. 
do we look like the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47? I mean, that's the model. They loved each other. They took care of one another. They were discipling one another from house to house. They were praying for one another. They were breaking bread together. That's the church that really loved each other as Christ loved. And they were centered around Christ. Do we look like that? Galatians 5.13 calls upon us to serve one another. To serve one another. Praise the Lord for the faithful people that go back to the nursery and miss a sermon to take care of the kids. And praise the Lord for the ones who are making coffee. Praise the Lord for those simple things here, but also praise the Lord for the rides to the hospital, the helping take out you know, gutter leaves out of gutters when there's stuff overflowing, running in the time of need when there's an emergency or a problem, praying for one another constantly. These are ways in which we can serve one another, giving people rides to church when they're shut in. Praise the Lord. This is how a church loves one another and carries each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, carry one another's burdens. Let's do that. And Jude, let's not forget Jude, talks about contending for the faith. And whose faith? The faith of our brothers and sisters. Bringing them back, snatching them as if snatching them out of the fire, contending for their faith and your faith. We do this together as a church. Are you concerned about your brother or sister's spiritual well-being? Are you concerned for their physical well-being? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Encourage one another and build each other up. This is the instruction for the church to take care of the church. And I think we don't love each other well when we neglect these instructions. And we see the church as just a place to come and feel good on a Sunday morning and then go about my business. If we're really going to practice loving one another as Jesus has loved us, it starts right here in the covenant membership and then extends out to the guests and then extends out from there. If we can't do it here, we're never going to do it out there. So it's got to start right here. We need to love as Christ first loved us. Things stop us, right? So we have these problems. I want to invite you later, maybe around lunch, maybe some other time, to think about what other ways you could add to the list. What gets us going sideways? Where are we getting it wrong? And what's the solution that we can fix? Problem is we are selfish. Yes, we have a sin nature. And we are selfish in that sin nature. And these sinful hearts keep us from loving others like Christ loved. But we're commanded to love others like Christ loves us. We're commanded to do it, so we should do it. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and then told his disciples, to love others just as he loved his disciples. He served them. Now, right now, we're thinking through all these things. We washed some feet, he served them. That doesn't seem so hard, does it? Except you need to recognize how much Jesus empowers us to do this. Because we can't and we won't serve one another rightly with love without Jesus' intervention in our life first. We just won't do it. In our sinfulness, we'll actually be self-serving. We'll be serving somebody else to get something out of them. Oh, look at, look at this. Maybe it's just, I want you to see me as righteous. I want you to do me a favor later. With this sinful heart, even when we're serving and it's not out of the love of Jesus, we're not really loving them. We're loving ourselves. We're serving ourselves. So it's Jesus who then comes and transforms our heart out of his forgiveness for us and out of his love for us so that we'll be able to do it in his love. Without him, we can't do it. But Jesus took the punishment for that sin so that we can love. We deserved 
to be punished. He did it for us. He forgave us. He died in our place when we were still his enemies, showing a profound love for us, demonstrating what should be happening. What other religion do you know where the Savior dies for his enemies to pay for their crimes? I can't think of another one. He's done a lot, and that's way more than foot washing. And that's something we could never do. We couldn't do it for ourselves. We couldn't do it for someone else. But Christ did it for us. Jesus washed Judas' feet and Peter's feet and all the other disciples. And only one of them was saved because only one of them would seek Jesus' forgiveness and reconciliation. Are you like Judas in the story or are you like Peter in the story? Seek the Lord and be saved. Turn to Jesus. He will do this for you and in turn transform you to love others as he has loved you. It all starts and ends with Jesus. First, he loved us when he died on the cross for our sins. Then, he loved his disciples in John 13, and he washed our feet, metaphorically, he washed our feet in so many ways. And then he shows us what it is to love Christ by letting us love his people and getting around his people. He's teaching us more and more about himself but that's not where it ends. Look at verse 35. Look down in your Bible. What it says in verse 35. It says, By this, he's referring to the command he just gave, that you're going to love as he loved. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, if you do this like he's asking you to, not in the way you think, but in the way he's asking you to. He says, when everyone sees what you're doing and how you're loving other Christians, they will know that you are a disciple of Jesus. If you do it his way and you do it well, everyone's going to know. Okay, So it isn't that you're feeding the homeless, although that's a good thing, or doing apologetics on a college campus, although that's a good thing, or who you support for the next president. It's about how you love other Christians. That can be a tricky thing, right? Sometimes we say we love Jesus, but we don't love the church. Well, that goes exactly against what this scripture is saying. Sometimes we say we love Jesus, but we won't be committed to one another in love, which says we don't love what Jesus says because we won't obey what he says. We find ourselves very contrary. This isn't about how much you love Jesus. It's about how much you love the people Jesus loves. Jesus set himself as the standard. And he told us to love our brothers and sisters, those of us in here and our brothers and sisters all around the world, by that standard. This is how we are to do it. And when we do it, and here's the really interesting part, when we actually do it, everyone will know that we are Christians. It's not even here, you know, the bumper sticker on the car or the T-shirt you wear. It's about how you love your brothers and sisters. Does everyone you encounter throughout your comings and goings, you know, at the grocery store and coffee shop and all your business, does everyone you encounter and everyone that you work with, whether you work at home and you just see them on a screen or you go into an office, everybody that you work with and all the people that you encounter, all of the neighbors in your immediate neighborhood and all of your friends, 
Do all of them know that you were a disciple of Jesus? Not because you told them, but because they see how you love other Christians. How are we doing with this? Does your love for others proclaim the gospel so that your friends, neighbors, family, everybody know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? If not, which I suspect you might be like me and and not have the best answer here. If not, I think we have some work to do, don't we? The work is not that we run over, knock on the door, and tell them we're a Christian. Although if you want to do that, go for it. That could get interesting. I'd love to hear the stories next week. The work that we need to do that Jesus has commanded us and his church is that we love one another as Christ loves us. Church, we have some feet to wash, don't we? I think we have some work to do. Let's pray. God, I I am so thankful that you would wash my feet even when I'm a sinner. I am thankful that you would wash even those who weren't forgiven's feet. I'm thankful that you would wash Peter's feet and bring him in and restore him and redeem him when he stumbled. God, I'm thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful for the the way in which you've loved us, and I'm thankful for the way in which you've modeled to us how we are to love one another. But God, I, I confess we don't do that very well at times, and we want to do it better. Lord, may we be a people here, a redeeming life, a people who are making, making some headway in this area, loving one another better. Lord, help us in this. We, we, need, we can't do this. We need you. Help us to love one another so well that the city of Bountiful and Centerville and Woods Cross and Farmington and Kaysville and Layton and North Salt Lake and West Bountiful and Salt Lake City and, and everywhere, everywhere we are and go, Lord, may they know that we are your disciples by how they see us love Christians and that the overflow of that would train us how we love everyone. I'm just, I, we need... We really need your help in this. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction that comes in this. Lord, let us do this better. Help us to do it. We need you in this. Lord, I'm just asking God that we would see tremendous fruit in this area, in ourselves, by the softening of our hearts, by the opening of ourselves up to our other brothers and sisters to serve them better and to love them more. Lord, we praise you so much. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.